Joanna, do you ever wish you could definitively prove that you had the right opinions about movies? Uh, yeah, Neil, because I do have the right opinions about movies and television. Right, Dave? No, because I'm more right about those things, and I demand trial by content. Oh boy, what is trial by content? Each week, we'll take on a huge question. Each of us will bring a choice, and combined with listener submissions and your votes, we will come to a decision. It's trial by content every Tuesday on Spotify, TheRinger.com, or wherever you're listening right now. Don't let Neil win. Don't let Dave win. This episode is brought to you by Walmart Plus. With a Walmart Plus membership, you save on everything you need to stay entertained. A Paramount Plus subscription is included to watch all your favorite shows. Plus, there's free delivery and even gas discounts. So when you're done streaming, you can hit the town and find entertainment in the real world, too. Save on all this plus much more with Walmart Plus. Start a free 30-day trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus essential plan only. Separate registration required. $35 order minimum. See walmart.com slash plus for details. This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. One thing you don't have to worry about cleaning up this spring season, your wireless bill. Just switch to Mint Mobile. It's easy. And right now, they have unlimited talk, text, and data plans for $15 a month when you buy a three-month plan. To get this new customer offer, go to mintmobile.com slash watch. That's mintmobile.com slash watch. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. For first three-month plan only. Speed slower, above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. I need support staff to clear the room. Stand up and walk. Now. Hello, and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheRinger.com, and joining me on the other line, she just got her taxes done by Sweet Liberty, and she has some questions. It's Joanna Robinson! <laughs> oh my god, I've never had the, uh, it's Andy Greenwald <laughs> treatment! What a what an honor. Wow. Thank you so much for doing this with me, Joanna. We're going to be covering the first two episodes of Better Call Saul, which premiered on Monday night. Andy is is still in transit, and I can't wait to hear what he thinks about this, but I... If I had to guess, I think he's going to say what we said, which is that Better Call Saul is back. It's like it never missed a beat. And I love this show so much. It's just like, it almost makes me emotional when when that guitar reverb starts during the, yeah. the credits because it's just such such an elite television show. And I'm so excited to talk to you about it. I'm so excited to talk to you. Um, is Andy in... London, like investigating Oscar Isaac's accent, is that what he's doing? Like on the yeah, ground investigation, you know, he he chases the scarab wherever it leads him. Uh, that's his dedication to Disney Plus content. Um, I, know, I don't know what to say. It's if just I know one so- thing about him, it's that. <laughs> that's right. Um, Joanna, uh, we can let's start with a little some general stuff because it's been two years almost to the day since the wow. last episode of Better Call Saul aired, and it's been. Delayed by obviously COVID slowdown. Uh, Bob Odenkirk suffered a heart attack on the set during the production of the sixth season. The sixth season is uh, split in half, so we're going to get half of it now and half of it at uh, point unknown. I hope this year. Um, I think it's just the end of summer. Something. Oh, it's, it's really the end soon. of the summer. Okay, yeah. great. And in that time being, uh, I don't know about you. I mean, I didn't rewatch the the series or anything. I felt like I was very on top of it. Personally, I just I you know as a as a person who talked about it all the time, I was like I got I, I know what's going on in Better Call Saul, and then uh, season six begins the episode Wine and Roses, which was uh, r- written by uh, Peter Gould and uh, directed by Michael Morris, and uh, Wine and Roses starts, and I'm just like, why is Nacho running again? <laughs> like the two years definitely <laughs> caught up with me at that point. 
Yeah, I was like, you messaged me. I was like, yeah, I I guess they were eating ice cream. Oh, no. Um, <laughs> what was going on? Uh, yeah, and I didn't, I haven't gone back and rewatched uh, the whole thing. I might at some point, but um, I rewatched the season five finale to okay. sort of brush up a little bit. But honestly, you know, we'll go through these episodes, but honestly, I think a season one rewatch might be more rewarding for people than a season five rewatch at this point. Yeah, so the Kettleman's... <laughs> Or back and I remember, you know, when they when they popped up and it was almost like this kind of the reaction within the the characters of the show itself are like the Kettleman's, oh my god! And I'm like, this you mean the people in season one who are like the tre- the county treasurer who embezzled money? And I I had to like go back through the Breaking Bad wiki you know, oh that god. has all the characters. God the, bless the wiki. And god universe. bless and I was it. Like, oh yeah. yeah, Betsy, she's she's a tough one. She was yeah. camping in her backyard. Um, yeah. So we're going to go through both of these episodes. I figured the way we could do it is kind of more cover the two, the major storylines that run throughout the two episodes rather than go beat by beat through uh, the episodes themselves. Although I do think as two episodes of television, these were, you know, absolutely wonderful. And you could spend uh, an hour talking about each one of them. General impressions, though, Joanna, after, I, mean, I, I thought it was nice that they gave us this double helping. Uh, upon this show's long way to return. Two scoops, I, yeah. I do definitely think <laughs> of Better Call Saul as one of the ultimate weekly episodic shows, though, where I get an episode and then really, really digest it, usually watch it twice, think about it, go back to shots I love, go back to lines I love. So uh, a feature film length dollop of, of, of Saul tonight. Yeah, well, I, it's funny, I... Um... I was talking to our colleague, uh, Ben Lindbergh, about it, and he brought up this really good point about how Saul is this connective tissue to what feels like a bygone era. It's like the last thread back to that prestige TV, uh, you know, white male antihero sort of uh, season of AMC and FX, et cetera. And I get extremely nostalgic watching this <laughs> show that's airing right now, even though it's not hitting us hard and heavy with the Breaking Bad Easter eggs. Like, I don't think, I think the show has always been so finely calibrated in terms of the way in which it interacts with Breaking Bad and the way in which it exists independent of Breaking Bad. And I think more so there's like the doom and gloom of Breaking Bad looming over it than there is, hey, remember this? Like occasionally Hank shows up and you're like, oh, Hank, you know, but it's, it's not trying like prodding you in that way. But it, that feeling of watching TV, slow TV in that way, there's a great Atlantic article up by Spencer Corn Haber that came up this last week. Uh, it was the social headline was Better Call Saul Dared to Bore Us. Uh, and it's sort of like, have we lost the patience for prestige TV? And Saul has always been much more than Breaking Bad, like a slow mm-hmm. burn show. And I really appreciate that about it. I like the idea of you being kind of like the the Dosecki's most interesting man in the world, and you're like, <laughs> I don't, I don't usually do this, but what I don't usually do white male antiheroes, but when I do, I like them to be from Albuquerque. <laughs> it's true. Yeah. My exception, my exception to the rule is yeah. uh, Bob Odenkirk. Bob Odenkirk. So I try really hard. I don't know what your uh, stance is on Chris, but I try really hard to not have parasocial relationships with celebrities anymore because I've just like met too many and know too much. Yeah. Plus they they take care of that for us somehow (laughs) in social media usually. Exactly. Yeah. But Bob Odenkirk is just like genuinely the nicest person I've ever met 
in my life. I met him before Breaking Bad at like some random event in San Francisco. And then post, you know, fame has not changed him. Nicest guy in the world. You you could see that by the way that people responded when he had his heart attack. So I yeah. do feel like very emotionally connected to Bob Odenkirk and well, very invested. Yeah. It's interesting that you mentioned this because the early seasons of Better Call Saul, I thought, you know, in totality are masterful in their own right. But I found to be a little bit tough sledding with the doc review with the like, you know, lots of montages of highlighting and post-it notes and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. But over the years, I would argue that the, the fans of the show have developed almost parasocial relationships with the characters themselves because you see this incredible amount of collective anxiety about the fate of Kim Wexler, who we know doesn't appear in Breaking Bad, and the fate of Nacho Varga, who I believe is is mentioned in the first episode or among the first episodes of Breaking Bad, but I can't... Or is that Lalo that gets mentioned? I always both forget. Of them, both Ignacio of them. and Lalo both get mentioned. Right. Yeah. So this kind of um, deep investment that people have developed with with these characters that we don't know the fate of, and even, even Saul himself or Jimmy McGill, uh, who we do obviously get in, in Breaking Bad to, to, to a great extent, I think that people have like developed this kind of... It's a, it's a very unique relationship in pop culture that happens when you got a long-running television show. And people... You know, you can have yeah. it in compressed ways. People can really fall in love with, with Mare from Mare of Easttown or really, you know, fall for like different... They can really feel for Kendall Roy, but you know it's it's kind of f- wild that we're ending this trip, and and I I wonder whether the show's ever been more beloved or popular. Well, the genius of you know the idea of a prequel, and a lot of people I remember when Breaking Bad was ending, and this spinoff was mentioned, and originally uh, my memory is that originally it was going to be like a half hour courtroom comedy was yeah. sort of the original sort of pitch for this, uh, and I think a lot of people were like, do we really want that? Do we want to dilute the power of Breaking Bad with this sort of you know spinoff? And I remember all the other like jokes about what spinoffs of prestige TV shows would be coming, like Better Phone Joan and like all this <laughs> sort of stuff like that, right <laughs> off of Mad Men, but but um, this the like prequels so often don't work, but the tension of what's going to happen, not just to like characters like Kim Wexler, who we have absolutely fallen in love with, or Nacho, uh, who I have absolutely fallen in love with, but how did Jimmy, who we have fallen in love with, become Saul? That's the question of any sort of premise. And you can answer it in a really dumb way in like solo colon a Star Wars story where you're like, oh, traveling solo, are you? This is how yeah. you got your blaster. Like, I don't really care how Saul got his suits, but I do care how Jimmy becomes Saul. And that's the, it's still the question. As, as far in as we are, as much as we've seen him use the name, wear the suits, there's still a core like emotional or moral pivot that has yet to come. And that's the that's the anxiety question hanging over everything because we don't want him to become Saul at this point. That's a tragedy yeah. uh, for us, you know? Yeah, and we see what happens to Saul afterwards. So the typically the seasons have opened with a black and white vignette of Saul Goodman, Jimmy McGill's post-Breaking Bad life somewhere in ne- Nebraska where he's working at a Cinnabon He's been extracted by the Robert Forster character and is living his life in the Midwest somewhere as like a guy named Gene who just works in a mall. And this season opens with a, a beautiful, if gaudy, montage of uh, kind of McMansion 
the kind of mini Versailles McMansion uh, being disassembled and basically cleaned out by what looks like, I guess, a moving company. And it's unclear as to whether or not that's a house that is being worked on at the end of Better Call Saul or I guess the end of Breaking Bad. Did you have, when you were watching that, did you just assume that this is Jimmy's house at the end of Better Call Saul or did you wonder whether we were seeing something towards the end of Breaking Bad? It feels like the end of Breaking Bad and it feels like not a moving company per se, but more, um, I mean, it might be part of the deluxe package, right? Because at the end of Breaking Bad, uh, Jimmy slash Saul escapes with this, like, you know, the vacuum salesman, I will disappear you sort of package. And uh, so it might be part of that, a cleaning crew part of that. But what it felt like to me was something associated with the DEA. Like, we are yeah. seizing this and we're just going to gut this place. Because something that you'll notice if you look at it, uh, there's... Other than this pink thong that is found uh, hanging off the bathroom taps, there's nothing belonging to a woman right. in this house. The bathroom is all like Viagra and, uh, you know, things belonging to Saul. So it seems for me, this reads as the end of Breaking Bad. He's left the state and they're coming in and gutting his house. And and the way in which like the various trappings of Saul, the cardboard cutout, all that stuff is just trashed and treated. Yeah. That's why that feels like very much end of Breaking Bad to me. And then there's the, and there, there's a little bit more opulence than I think even Saul, who's first starting to sort of in- interrogate his, his color choices with his suits and yeah. starting to like really indulge in sort of the, I mean, he's still driving a Ford Tempo or whatever in this... <laughs> In this episode. Yeah, yeah. So it would have to get, even though Kim is starting to plant the seeds that your character needs the trappings of a high-powered lawyer, he's still kind of like a normal guy. Yeah, we're not gold toilet level yet. Um, But I think that also, I don't know if I got this really um, nostalgic flashback to the Breaking Bad cooks in this sequence. I mean, a lot of the, I think we got some of this like with, with the Cinnabon montages like you know the icing on the Cinnabon and the black and white sequences like I think we've seen similar things but watching all those ties sort of fall down in front of the camera in slow motion as the 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 track Days of Wines and Roses plays that sort of like syrupy song over something kind of harsh and violating that's happening felt very Breaking Bad Cook to me. Yeah, very, um, remi- I mean, reminiscent yeah. even of Crystal Blue Persuasion or whatever, you know, I'm playing. always thinking yeah. of Crystal Blue Persuasion <laughs> <laughs> or Crimson and Clover or whatever it is. Yeah, yeah. Um, so we can get into the episodes themselves. We can, I guess, let's talk first about um, what happens with Jimmy and Kim in this episode. You mentioned the ice cream and uh, we are, we're joining the action pretty much immediately after the conclusion of season five. Uh, that is much more evident with Nacho, but Kim and Jimmy are are just doing their thing. And Kim has sort of really obviously arrived at a place in her life where she truly loves what she does. I mean, she seems to be practically buzzing off of this new role as a pro bono defense attorney. And meanwhile, Jimmy seems much more uh, ambivalent, possibly because he still has sunburn from his piss-drinking <laughs> desert walk, uh, about his where he's arrived uh, professionally, which is essentially as like a hybrid bagman, middleman for cartels, and and working and working with guys like Lalo and Gus and and Nacho. So we get to this uh, these these opening scenes with Kim and Jimmy, and 
the thing that's still kind of uniting them is the the desire for revenge against Howard Howard Hamlin, who is yeah. who is the, both of their bosses at various points and has been this kind of professional foil over the course of of the series. And there's already talk about Sandpiper. There's already talk about kind of hearkening back to the early seasons. And Sandpiper was the retirement community class action suit that honestly was like the major storyline for several for several seasons yeah. and i had to go back and refresh my memory about what exactly happened with sam piper but yeah they're obviously like they enact a, a long-term scheme yeah. uh to make create the perception that howard is a cocaine addict yeah it's it's um i think the turn at the end i mean if you want to call it a turn it's, it's a literal turn but the end of season five when they're sort of like, they're doing this, what if we did this to Howard? And what if we did this to Howard? You know, because like the end of season five or mid season five, Jimmy's doing all this stuff, like throwing bowling balls over Howard's gate or hiring prostitutes to, you know, interrupt Howard's dinner. And in the season five finale, Howard confronts Kim and he's like, hey, Jimmy's doing all this stuff. You don't want to hit your wagon to this. And Kim has a very sort of, how dare you? This is so patronizing for you right. to warn me off. Like, how dare you assume that I don't have my own agency? So that's when she sort of gets her back up about Howard. But also, it feels like Jimmy's doing all this, this like penny ante reckless schemes that are going to yeah. get him caught. And Kim, I don't, there's a couple things at play here. She's, I think she's both wanting to do a more sophisticated level of scheme so that they don't get caught. We'll we'll do it the right way. We'll do it my way, right? Right. So it's protective of Jimmy, but also it's like Kim has got a taste for this. Like if anyone's breaking bad, that's a big surprise of Better Call Saul. I think we watched this whole thing knowing Kim's not in Breaking Bad, worrying that she's going to die or something's going to happen because of Jimmy's recklessness is going to put her in danger and she's either going to die or disappear forever for some reason. But now the question is the way I think that Odenkirk and Sierra played it at the end of season five is like, she's the one with the taste for it. Yeah. And he's bumping up against his moral quandaries. And so as much as he is like anti Howard, he's like, but this is a little much. Yeah. Well, I, I, I think that his moral quandary is Kim. I think that he feels like Kim is becoming in danger the more she becomes immersed in this world, this yeah. underworld, really. Yeah, but no. you're right. I mean, this uh, second episode that we'll get to, or we can talk about now even, ends gets towards the end, and it uh, ends with a shot of Kim before they drive off from the Sweet Liberty Tax Services where the Kettlemans are now working. Kim is standing outside, leaning up against this crappy Ford that Jimmy has rented. And... Uh, Vince Gilligan directed the second episode and Jimmy comes out after having given the Kettleman's a little bit of pocket money after Kim essentially destroys their lives. And Kim is standing against this car and the way they shoot it, it's obviously like the usual bright, white, like whitewashed Albuquerque backdrop uh, or desert backdrop, really. But Kim's eyes are like hooded in darkness. And I just want to say the show remains the most visually stunning show on TV. It may not always feel that way because it's not Carrie Fukunaga Wonners or, you know, the sort of absolutely gorgeous, sumptuous pastoral TV, you know, filmmaking that you might find in other TV shows. But shot for shot, in terms of the way you convey ideas visually, 
this show has got no peers to, to me. Like it, the 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 cinematography and the direction is always so no, no perfect. And that shot of Kim is that's that's the door closing on Michael Corleone at the end of The Godfather. You know? Yeah, I mean that's how I felt when she turned around and gave him like the finger guns at the end of season five. But like it's just gonna get worse. It feels like. And I love that you pointed out that shot to me. I hadn't really noticed how her eyes were shaded, and I went back and rewatched it. And it's it's incredible. The thing about the Better Call Saul camera and the Breaking Bad camera is like, obviously they've had different directors in who have done slightly spins on things. You've got your Ryan Johnson episodes or Michelle McLaren will come in and there's like a little something extra going on. But no matter who's directing, there is this sort of um, emphasis always on placing the camera somewhere somewhere really interesting, right? It's never, I'm not never, but it's often... Uh, you're left outside a room or you're the, what I like to call the impossible shot, which is they'll shoot up through a table that isn't see-through, but they'll make it see-through, you know? So they're always trying to put the camera somewhere really bizarre, interesting. And when you watch a show like this, you want to be immersed in the action. But if you study a show like this, if you rewatch it obsessively, it's really fun to stop and think about where they decide to put the camera in these various yeah. shots. You know? um, one of my favorites is in the second episode in Carrot and Stick with the shootout that Nacho gets himself into in the parking lot of the hotel. Yeah. The overhead shot of Nacho lying down on the front seat of the truck. Yeah. But it's like that truck that truck's roof would not be that high, right. but it's they're able to do stuff like that and make it feel very, very real and showy, but not distractingly showy. It just creates like a a disorientation in it. And honestly, it just like it always keeps your the you know, you, you when you're watching TV, especially, I think, and when you're watching anything, but when you're watching TV, I think sometimes you're the side of your brain that's following and recognizing and either enjoying or critiquing or or processing the writing can be bigger than, you know, than the side of your brain that's thinking about why did they put the camera there or what's this lighting like? And, you know, there, that, that sometimes is why TV kind of is so digestible is because it's not necessarily visually challenging. Yeah. And, uh, I, I think that they find it sort of maybe have like the perfect combination of, of this brilliant writing with this very, very provocative filmmaking. It's also, I, I want to talk, I'm so curious to talk to you about this because I know you and Sean had this great discussion about sort of like theory TV versus not theory TV and how to how to watch television. This has been the ongoing debate like since Lost through Westworld, et cetera, et cetera. And I understand the stance that some people take, and I've heard Andy eloquently speak about this, uh, where you don't want like a good story to get swallowed in the picking through of clues and yeah. minutia and stuff like that. And I really understand that stance. I think the, for me, the way that I like to watch TV, the ideal is some combination sure. of the two where the minutia, where the picking through for clues informs the story when you're trying to sort of pre- predict something, you're doing it based on story and character that you've seen already, you know, and I get, I get frustrated when it's not anchored there. I've seen no show uh, or no pair of shows better than Better Call Saul and Breaking Bad for threading that needle because they're actively engaging in that sort of like Reddit clue sure. fandom when they code the episode titles of a season of B- Better Call Saul to read Frings back to like, you know, signal to the audience <laughs> that Giancarlo Esposito is coming. Yeah. If you put the first letter of every, you know, they're doing stuff. The titles for this season appear to all be blank and blank 
construction, carrot and stick, wine and roses. Uh, there's a, there's a few more that have been released. I mean, I'm just, um, one might be called Walt and Jesse because they've I, already announced that Walt and Jesse will make an appearance. I hope, and I don't, I don't know. Like I, I and what that makes my brain do is try to guess what the final one will be. And I'm like, yeah. is it his and hers? Is it like what you know? What it, what what would be a really fun one? That's like a fun thing to think about. They all. They also actively engage in color theory. And so I was paying attention to what Kim was wearing because it read really different and incorrect to me. I'm like, why is what Kim's wearing in that in that scene you're talking about where her eyes are shaded? Why is it reading so wrong to me? So I went back through and I looked. And up to this point, Kim has mostly worn blacks and grays and blues and whites. Like, mm-hmm. that's her color palette. They put her in a brown suit with these, like, gaudy stripes. Like, it's a, it's a Saul. Like, she, like Saul wears brown suits. Yeah. And Saul wears gaudily striped ties. So, like, they didn't, they didn't do, like, a hokey, we're going to put her in a bright pink suit with a tie sort of Saul thing. But they gave her this really subtle Saul costume. I, I think it's brilliant. It was, you know? so... There are definitely shows that that I do engage in in theory TV with. I think that my most recent uh, experience that I needed to detox from was True Detective season three, where I was, <laughs> you know, yeah, get, getting deep into Lovecraft Reddit, and then found out, oh, so this is just this guy's like Vietnam trauma. All right, <laughs> like I, I thought we were going into a third plane of existence, but that's all right. Yeah, uh, I love that season with Better Call Saul. I am almost. Um, I, I don't mean to make this sound like weird. I just basically think these guys are smarter than me. So I'm just well, like, they are. Th- yeah. yeah. And I'm so just like, when I watch these scenes, like Nacho kicking out the air conditioner, sneaking into this, this little cabin that's on the premises of his hotel and then tricking the guy who's watching him into getting a phone call. Yeah. I'm like, how do you plot that? You know, how, how does like, it's, it's like still within the realm of like, what Nacho could do. Like, it's not out of the question that Nacho would all of a sudden think of this scenario. But like, how do you show that on screen and have it be plausible? So routinely, the Better Call Saul writers do stuff where I'm like, I, I, you could have left me alone in a room with a typewriter for a hundred years and I couldn't have thought something that cool. The reason I didn't mean to so hastily be like, they are smarter than you, Chris, but they're smarter, <laughs> they're smarter than all of us because this is the thing that they do that I that I love. And I I don't know if it's unique to this show, but I've never heard another showrunner or writer talk about this where where they're very open about this thing that they do where they will write themselves into a corner just for the joy of writing themselves back out of that corner, right? right? So how do we get Nacho out of this hotel? Right. We're going to put him here. We're going to put Nacho in this impossible situation at the end of season five, or we're going to put them in this hotel or um, what, you know, and and this is like a big scale version of that because like, how do we get to Jean at the Cinnabon is like sort of mm-hmm. the question that they've put for themselves or how do we get from Jimmy to Saul is the question they put for themselves. But the first time I think I remember them actively talking about it was in Breaking Bad when they put the gun in Walt's trunk, the trunk of his car. We see it in like a flash forward. Yeah. And, and they it- had no idea how it got there or what it meant, but they were like, we'll figure that out. That's a little game we've set for ourselves. I mean, that's, that's just extra level. Like I couldn't even actively plot out a series as emotionally enriching as as these shows are. And they're like, we've done it backwards and puzzle boxed it for ourselves, um, which is just honestly next level TV. So, And it, it's interesting when that kind of thinking starts to or does bleed over into the characters. So I think what Jimmy and Kim are doing to Howard is almost like they're writing Better Call Saul. 
You know, they're planting <laughs> seeds of doubt. They are uh-huh. creating scenarios in which something like this could happen. And the idea of bringing together both first Jimmy's like whole going into this country club and doing a whole anti-Semitism speech, (laughs) all to distract people so that he can go plant fake cocaine on Howard. Yeah. That um uh well, I can't remember Ed Begley's character's name off the top of my head. What is it? Cliff. Cliff. That Cliff is going to discover and take Howard's word for it at the moment, but in the subsequent episode. We'll start to have that confidence chipped away when the Kettlemans are like, and we heard Howard is a crazy cocaine addict. And it's like, it's just going to take one more incident like that. And Cliff is going to be like, I think Howard might be a cocaine addict. And that's, that's, this is the Kim Wexler approach. And it's Mm -hmm. so smart and so subtle versus whatever Jimmy, you know, his, his prostitutes crashing lunch sort of uh, move. Jimmy probably would have just chosen to like run straight into Howard and have like a bag of cocaine explode <laughs> and be like, Howard, you're covered in cocaine. You know? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, but I th- yeah, I, I think that um, the other thing that the show is so brilliant at is we're worried for Kim. We don't like that she's getting, she has a taste for this, but just like with Breaking Bad, um, the griffs are so fun, right? It's so fun to watch Walt do what he does. And it's so it's seducing you the same way that the characters are being seduced into this. Like, I love watching Kim and Jimmy do a grift. Like every yeah. time they do one, it's so fun to watch them. So you're with them and you're like, yes. And even though Howard has not done anything overtly evil to deserve any of this, you're still kind of rooting for them to get away with it because yes. we we care about them and it's so fun. But if you step back, you're like, Kim, what are you doing? Jimmy, I mean, even, what are you doing? even the carrot and the stick scene. So mm-hmm. even that scene towards the end of episode two where Kim sits through Jimmy's carrot routine, sits through him <laughs> trying to say like, everybody wants a little money in their pocket and like, here, why don't we do this? Like, we're going to work together, but... And and just tries to encourage them and say, like, you know, this is this is the best thing for you. Kim, you know, has heard enough. And she says enough, Carrot. And she calls the IRS and she dresses down Betsy, who is a repulsive person. But still, I think that the brilliant thing that the show does is they can rescue moments of empathetic behavior or sympathetic behavior out of characters that are not particularly sympathetic. Mm -hmm. And you just kind of feel for those two people in the moment because you're like, Oh, you got, you got worked by a master and that master is actually not Jimmy. It's Kim. The, the way that Kim the night before listening to Jimmy say, Oh, I know these people carrots going to work. And just like watching her say, figure out in her head, this is never going to work. I have to come and do it. Uh, he's going to mess it up, right? Yeah. That's that's fantastic. Um, but yeah, as you say, to make it so complicated, you talked about Kim's pro bono work. This is something that she sort of dove headlong into at the end of season five, the season five finale. She's like, give me all your pro bono cases. I, I need to do this. She is energized by that. And she does say that like, if they get the Sandpiper money, she wants to you know devote herself to doing pro bono work. But it all feels like dressing up these darker impulses in this justification, right? Yeah. This like do-goodery. It's a complicated thing for Kim because we're used to Kim being so moral, holding the moral line. And so she's still doing this pro bono work. And that still exists for her character. But I feel like, again, your Michael Corleone, um reference is perfect. Like it, 
that Kim is gone, it feels like. And I'm worried we're never going to get her back. She's evaporating. I mean, you know, I I wanted to mention just briefly uh, the depiction of Kim and Jimmy's romantic relationship because one of the great accomplishments of this show is, I don't know if it's unique, but this, it's like a, a friendship that has manifested itself romantically because it needs to go to another level. Mm. But the way that they kind of show Jimmy and Kim being these people who, I don't know if they have like rabid sexual chemistry or anything, but they definitely like have like a deep understanding of one another, even if Jimmy is obviously like sometimes playing three card Monty even on himself. Yeah. And this, it comes out in these like little ways. Like I love how this show conveys like intimacy between these two characters by having them eat together a lot. Yeah. And decide like what, like they're going to have Thai food takeout tonight or they're going to have a Sunday bar or like, their levels of comfort in any given moment. Like Kim is like gorging herself at the Mexican restaurant is like ordering more food. And Jimmy's like, I'll just have a Coke. Cause like, yeah, I don't know if I'm like comfortable with where everything is going right now. Yeah, yeah. And you don't have to come out and say it, but I was wondering if, if what you thought of Jim and Kimmy's, uh, Jim and Kim's <laughs> Jimmy and Kim's just, just regular, like the romantic relationship in general. It's not something we see a lot of. I love it. It, it reminds me of, um, sort of one of my, well, there's two ideal TV couples that I think about often, which are like coach and Mrs. Coach. Right. Mm-hmm. And, um, Ben and Leslie and parks and recreation. I think right. those are two like really beautiful depictions of like, people who like and love each other, right? right? It's not just about like, will they, won't they? It's like, how do they? Yeah. And so when you think about like Coach and Tammy just sharing sharing a Chardonnay in the backyard as they talk about their days, as they often would, like there would just be these moments or like making breakfast or whatever it was. And I think similarly with Ben and Leslie, you just like, you see that camaraderie that is the foundation for hopefully a lifelong partnership. With the... Kim and Jimmy, it's it's the eating together. It's the like, there's several seasons of them just like watching movies together. Yeah. They'll just be at home watching like old black and white movies or whatever. I'm like, that looks so nice. Yeah. <laughs> I love that for them. And and what it does is paint a, a simple, quiet, domestic life that they're constantly putting at risk. We're, we're being shown what's on the line here. And yeah. it's this little life that they've built together. And if they could have just been happy with that little life together, then whatever happens to pull them apart for Breaking Bad maybe need not have happened. I think that what's going to pull them apart is the getting involved in the uh, cartel wars. Could be. Could be. This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. One thing you don't have to worry about cleaning up this spring season, your wireless bill. Just switch to Mint Mobile. It's easy. And right now, they have unlimited talk, text, and data plans for $15 a month when you buy a three-month plan. To get this new customer offer, go to mintmobile.com slash watch. That's mintmobile.com slash watch. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. For first three-month plan only. Speed slower, above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. This episode is brought to you by Walmart Plus. With a Walmart Plus membership, you save on everything you need to stay entertained. 
A Paramount Plus subscription is included to watch all your favorite shows. Plus, there's free delivery and even gas discounts. So when you're done streaming, you can hit the town and find entertainment in the real world, too. Save on all this, plus much more with Walmart Plus. Start a free 30-day trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus essential plan only. Separate registration required. $35 order minimum. See walmart.com slash plus for details. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. This episode is brought to you by 7-Eleven. Cold Slurpee drinks and a hot summer day are a match made in heaven, and your favorite refreshment just got even better. Let's talk about 7-Eleven's $1 small Slurpee drink with seven rewards. It's the classic frozen fizzy treat you can't get anywhere else. I'm a blue raspberry guy. Just know that about me. Know that about me going forward. Anytime there's a drink like this, I'm in on the blue raspberry. If you're feeling thirsty, feeling thirsty right now, how about going to visit a 7-Eleven valid through 1725? 7-Eleven has the right to end this promotion early, plus tax, participating U.S. stores. See app for full terms. All rights reserved. Let's talk about that side of the show. Well, Not can that I, can I, oh, yeah. Can I do one more thing about the, so the end of Carrot and Stick, Jimmy says wolves and sheep. And like you, I, I need memory refreshers all the time on this show. But that was such a, that was such like an overt callback feeling moment. Yes. So I Googled like wolves and sheep and break it bad. So this is the defining moment of young Jimmy's life is like when he was a kid working in his dad's store and his dad was this like gentle pushover who would just like help anyone and give handouts. And and he was a target for grifters. This grifter comes in, tries to pull a grift on his dad. And young Jimmy is like, daddy's trying to grift you. His dad's like, no, I'm going to help him. And so then Jimmy sort of calls the grifter out on his bullshit. And when his dad is out of the room, and he and the grifter sort of exchange this moment. And the grifter says, there's two types of people wolves in the world, wolves and sheep. And you have to decide who you're going to be. Right. And this whole time that we've been watching Jimmy turn into Saul, we're like, he's a, you know, he's he's a, a sheep in wolves clothing. That That's certainly like how Chuck viewed him, right? As, mm-hmm. as a wolf in sheep's clothing, I should say. Like, he's he's a wolf. But I think what we've seen, like how he genuinely cares about Chuck, like all this stuff, all the ways in which he's been sort of misunderstood and pushed aside. Like, I think he's at his core a sheep and it's Kim who's the surprise wolf in sheep's clothing. And that's so scary for yeah, Kim, I, you, know? you know? My reading of that moment was that was he was talking about the Kettleman's and that he was saying, maybe yeah, these people tried to play the game and they didn't have it. You know what I mean? Like they didn't have what it takes to, you know, they couldn't get one over on me. They couldn't get one over in the city. And now they're living in a trailer in the middle of nowhere, (laughs) skimming money off of people's tax returns and just giving them checks that they take to the, uh, to the casino. But yeah, he was probably also like, I just recognized the wolf and Kim, you know, maybe I'm the sheep. I don't know. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about the, the Salamanca family business stuff going on in these two episodes. Nacho, who had orchestrated uh, a hit on Lalo, an unsuccessful hit in a sort of myth-building moment for Lalo, if you needed any more, he <laughs> survives this attack 
mm-hmm. um, goes on to kill a farmhand after drinking uh, his wife's coffee and make his body look as close to Lalo as possible. Um, that moment when the guy looks up in the mirror, which was in the trailer, and I think a lot of people were like, is this a new big bad or is there some new character? And it was just Lalo molding this guy into a corpse, essentially. Okay, so Lalo, I think, is a perfect character on television. <laughs> yeah. And uh, Tony Dalton, uh, you know, is is great no matter where he goes. Even if he's, like, in a sort of slightly subpar Marvel TV show, like, he's incredible, right? Yes. Um, but the idea that Lalo... When Lalo shows up, it, it's been... The show has been so interesting as it tries to balance... It started out as like, it felt like two parallel shows, the Jimmy show and the Mike show, mm-hmm. uh, or the Jimmy and Chuck show and the Mike and whatever's happening with Mike show. And then slowly we were adding chips on the Mike side, like Nach- Nacho was there from the beginning, but like Gus shows up uh, and that's sort of a spark of energy. Because sometimes I would get impatient to go back to the Jimmy story because I was so emotionally invested in then. As much as I love Jonathan Banks and Mike Armitrout, sure. like... Um, but when Lalo comes on the scene last season, I was like, okay, here it is. Like, I'm never, I'm never tired of, yes. of hanging out with Lalo. And um, the fact that Lalo, who's got the like brutality of Tuco and the and the sneaky cunning of Hector, has like curated this corpse, right? Because he has been like giving, like match putting his teeth in his teeth. He's like been like messing with his dental records for a long time. Like he yeah. has hand selected this guy to be his double should he ever need one. Do you, Chris, do you have a, a a guy that you're grooming to be your corpse should you ever need to swap him in? I'm not going to say that Andy is getting some dental work done in England, <laughs> but I'm not going to not say that. <laughs> I mean, that's a... That's... England, England not known for their dentists. Yes, true, but... <laughs> true, true. Yeah, off an off books uh, dental swap happening in the in the back streets of London right now. Um, yeah, it's it, what a move! What a move! On Again, this guy. another one of those things where I'm just not as smart as these people. You know, like the him being like, did, did he go to the dentist? Did he has he been going to the dentist that I recommended? I was like, oh my god, are you kidding me? Oh yeah. So Lalo and Nacho are enacting uh, a very you know kind of no country for old men chasing one another <laughs> across the Southwest thing. Yeah. And in the balance between Nacho's trying to escape, he gets to this hotel. He's holed up in what, you know, I'm sure that place does not have great Yelps. Uh, although the room service seems quite nice, you know, with that woman bringing the tray of food every day. But I can't... Was she bring just- him like monsters? Or like, it was probably a beer. But I was uh, like, are, are those monster energy drinks? <laughs> that would be, that'd be terrible is to get jacked up on monster while you're like stuck in an unair conditioned oh, <laughs> motel room. And, you know, Nacho figures out that there's a, someone watching him from this sort of shed. He's on the phone with, he's in contact with Tyrus, who is setting up a, a kind of extraction. But that's obviously like, you know, a maybe or maybe not going to happen. Mm-hmm. And Nacho gets out of his hotel room by kicking an air conditioner out the window. I think that was just an incredible, like, cool moment. He sneaks up on this guy who's watching him who doesn't know why he's watching him, but, you know, or says, claims to not know who he's working for, but it becomes quite obvious who he's working for. And then uh, Nacho escapes from uh, the hotel when the Salamanca cousins show up. Yeah. And there's this incredible shootout. And that ties into 
this question that Gus is trying to answer for himself, which is, does he want to cut bait on Nacho? Yeah. And leave him? Or does he want to uh, basically entice him to come back home by kidnapping his father? And the only thing standing in the way of that stuff is Mike. Uh, entice is an interesting word. Yeah. Entice. Sweeten the deal. Trying to put some incentives in the deal mm-hmm. uh, by, by kidnapping his father. So... There's a lot to unpack here, but mostly I was curious about your feelings about the scene towards the end of episode two in the trailer where I think we're supposed to think that this sniper is looking out for Lalo popping up or some sort of threat on Gus. Yes. And first of all, I'll just say my favorite Breaking Bad episode is Box Cutter. (laughs) And Uh when I see Gus start picking up sharp objects... (laughs) I get very nervous for everybody else in the room. But it's so funny that it can be so tense, even though we know all three men in those rooms survive to Breaking Bad. Mm-hmm. All three of those characters are in Breaking Bad, but we're still like, what's going to happen in this moment? You know, Just and how also, does the show do that? You the know? detail of this guy picking up an entire broken glass in his bare hands and then just like sweeping it into the <gasps> trash can. And the way that Gus Spring is always like cleaning and tidying and fastidious. Um, Similarly, like last season when uh, Lalo burns down the Poyos Hermanos and he's just sort of like, he has a Poyos Hermanos napkin that's been half burned and he's kind of like using it to wipe his hands as he's talking about what he's going to do. And then he just like throws it away. Like it's wreckage everywhere. But he throws his napkin in the dumpster because that's who (laughs) Gus Spring is always. Yes. Yeah. yeah, no, it's it's an incredible scene. It's and the the big question mark hanging over Mike and Gus is how do they get from where they are, which is kind of antagonistic, despite the fact that Mike is working for him, to a much more convivial relationship that they have in, yeah. in Breaking Bad. So, like, right. what is you know what is Mike going to do to win Gus's trust, or what is Gus going to do to make Mike want to be his? guy you know like what how is that relationship going to evolve is a question and like is nacho the price that's paid on one side or the other of that right and you know this idea that mike is sort of saying to gus that loyalty goes both ways you know and that the idea is that like you can't ask nacho to do this thing if you're not going to also follow through with what you what you set your side of the bargain and and gus just kind of looking at him like an alien looking at a tree stump you know (laughs) in terms of understanding concepts of loyalty Mm -hmm. but yeah i just thought that was a wonderfully tense scene so when mike says uh no matter what happens next, like this is not going to go the way you think it's going to go. Yeah. Is that suggestion that the guy with the sniper rifle is going to take everybody out if Mike gets hurt? Oh, I hadn't thought of it that way. Um, I thought it was just Mike Erman, like classic Mike Erman Trout, like cojones of steel um, yeah. in any given situation. Mike has um, just got like, just having a sniper with him all the time has just turned out to be a great decision for Mike. Great. Great move. Uh, could have used one of the the riverbank. Um, but I think that um, his softness for Nacho is like this is just the classic Mike uh, contradiction that mm-hmm. has always existed in him. Like this, similar to like the softness he has for Jesse. Right? Is just like this. And I can't tell if Nacho is supposed to be like our Jesse Pinkman in all of this. I right. don't quite know that he's like risen to that level of protect him at all costs, but Michael Mando is so good in the role. Um, 
yeah, I, 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 I'm thinking of engaging my own sniper wherever I go. I think that's a great move for me. Uh, if if I ha- if I told you right now that we're going to do a Better Call Saul spinoff about uh, Nacho's two girlfriends getting on the bus, <laughs> <laughs> his his methed out domino playing girlfriend. I need the me- I need her to not. I would I would watch the other one, but the domino girl. I was like, I she need might her. be kind of intense. That, <laughs> that would have to, to be like a Quibi show. <laughs> it's only six. <laughs> I can only do six minutes with you. Quick bites with yeah. uh, domino meth girl. Yeah. Um, the girlfriend seems safe for now. The the father. I mean, and like, that's the thing is like Mike, when, you, when the whole safe gambit, which is a little obscure to follow for me initially, yes. but like this idea that they crack open Nacho's safe, take everything out, bring in an, the identical safe, put everything back in except for the card that has the the ID for Nacho's dad. Yes. And then they add the like Grand Cayman uh, wire transfer balance sheet with the phone number of the motel on it, planted right. there, uh, you know, to lead the cartel to Nacho, right? right? So Mike in that moment is prepared to give Nacho up. But the fact that Nacho survives, because he puts that in there, right? So yeah. The Night, Mike that, puts the envelope in there and yeah. then it's Bolsa, right? Who yes. takes it out. Who cracks it out. Yeah. So they planted right. that there. So that they would find it and say, like, oh, it was clearly Nacho, Nacho, who got paid by someone, it, you know, put the hit out on Lalo. He's he's the one, and this is where you can find him. So Mike is ready to give him up. The fact that he survived the shootout, I think that's sort of like some old-fashioned, like, Mike respects it. And he's like, okay, now right. I'm going to put myself out here to kind of protect Nacho. Certainly yeah, the, his dad, but, like, definitely The Nacho. dad ID thing is tough because, yeah, I— he puts because he takes out Nacho's ID, right? Yeah, but he and puts it back in. But he pockets the dad's, the dad's ID, so yeah. somewhat protecting the father. Yes, then that's okay. what I thought. Yeah. So I was kind of one thing that was sort of breaking my brain was like basically watching like Hector, Gus, Bolsa. They're referring to Eladio as like you know. Ultimately, we all work for Eladio. Yeah, and I had to like kind of like I I did not finish my scholarship yet, but like. I had to kind of start to reassemble the Breaking Bad Salamanca Fring Eladio Wars yeah. in my head to be like, where does this wind up going? But what happens when? So that we know, like, Gus, obviously there's like enough of a, I don't know, is it a, I, in the beginning of Breaking Bad or throughout Breaking Bad, like, for a while there's just like Salamanca hates Gus, but they work together, correct? Right. 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 Okay. So. I'm just trying. I'm not trying to like kind of basically reverse engineer what happens here. It's more just like I'm like okay, but they wind up still. Yeah. This isn't going to end now, right? And then like the the Lalo question is so interesting because like when Saul gets kidnapped by Walt and Jesse in Breaking Bad, he's like, "Did Lalo send you?" That's season yes. two, right? Yeah. So then you're like, okay, is Lalo still alive? I mean, this this is the this is the, such the fascinating, again, classic like Vince Gilligan, Peter Gould conundrum they set up themselves because Lalo is both alive and dead right now. Yes. Right. So like that that could maybe paste over some questions. Also, of Breaking like, Bad could start the day after Better Call Stall ends. Do you know what I mean? Like it might not be there's years in between. Yeah. You absolutely. know what I mean? Like that, like it could be like the next day is the day he meets Walt and Jesse. So it could be that Lalo, he doesn't even know if Lalo is alive or dead. Can I tell you, this is slightly off topic, but one time way back in the day, I was freelancing for Vulture and they asked me to do a thing where they were like, hey, we've got this timeline of Breaking Bad 
every single time that the timeline has been mentioned, we want you to update it and say and figure out exactly how much time has passed on Breaking right. Bad. So I did a complete Breaking Bad rewatch. And, and every time someone said, it's been a week or it's been a day or whatever, I wrote it down. Real, real sweat uh, work. And at the end of the day, I came back to my editor. I was like, it doesn't add up. Like, I, it doesn't make sense. And then <laughs> my editor went to Peter Gould and he's like, hey, this doesn't make sense. And Peter Gould's like, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the timeline on this show is completely asked. So what do you have like, to do? <laughs> yeah, now we know. Before we engage in any long-term project mapping out Breaking Bad or Better Call Saul, just call Peter Gold first. <laughs> yeah, and he'll be like, don't, Joanna, no, <laughs> get your life back. Um, anyway, that's the vulture very nicely killed me, a, paid me a kill fee for that uh, work. But anyway, I think Peter um, Gold should have paid you a kill fee. <laughs> but, um, um, but like mapping out the timeline, I just want to, as a cautionary tale for people listening, is like, a, you know, it's fruitless for you to do that. But you're absolutely right. Yes. That we don't okay. know when the app overlap is going to happen. But Lalo. Saul Jimmy seems to think Lalo's alive in season two and by season four of Breaking Bad Fring taunts Hector and he says like all the other Salamancas are dead right Right. right. so when does Lalo die between season two and four of Breaking Bad is Gus lying is Saul sure. uninformed like we don't know Lalo's but, pretty good at faking his own death I would know that. Yeah. love for Lalo to survive all the way into the black and white gene years and have <laughs> Lalo him comes for a cinema oh yeah Lalo at the Cinnamon is all I want, honestly. <laughs> yeah. Um, I guess like, I wanted to end by just asking whether or not you felt like... See, the thing is, I was going to ask, like, do you see any like big themes or big questions you have for going into next week? But I feel like this show is so contained and like, like everything that we've talked about already, like the sort of descent of Kim into this kind of underworld operator. Mm -hmm. uh, there's obviously this kinetic, visceral cat and mouse game going to happen between Lalo and Nacho. I, I was going to ask, it seems Lalo, when he takes the coyote's truck, when he kills yeah. those guys at the border, is driving away from the border, correct? Like he sort of turns, it's like the the United States border is 28 miles like to the north and it seems like he goes south. Did you catch that? Uh, maybe, but I think... I think he's driving the car at the end of Carrot and Stick. I think he's following Kim and Jimmy. Oh, Joanne, are you serious? I do. I didn't even think of that. I thought that was just like a cool random car going by. <laughs> he, th I don't know. Like, and and listeners might be like, of course, we've seen him drive that car before. I couldn't pin it down that much. But here's here's how I tracked it. He tells, like, he has that great conversation with Hector using purely bells where he's like, oh, you need proof? Yeah. I don't know how to get proof. He, well, he's he like, oh, you, wait, I do know Jimmy how to get and proof. And it's Jimmy and Kim. And the reason he knows, he knows that Jimmy is connected to, like, Nacho and everything like that. And right. he knows the big thing that happened in season five with, like, Lalo and all of them is that Kim, when Jimmy's missing, Kim goes to Lalo and, and says, is like, I don't where, know where is, he is he? Yeah. And and then he comes and visits them and it's so scary in their apartment and stuff oh, like that. And Kim best like scene in television. So good. <laughs> yeah. But what Lalo then knows is that Kim is like a big vulnerability point yes. for Jimmy. Yes. So I do I I don't know. Uh, but I think that I hadn't really thought about that. 
It's so scary. I'm so scared for everyone. I care about everyone. So, yeah. Um, Well, Joanna, thank you so much for talking about these episodes with me. We can wrap it up here. And you're going to be doing a deep dive with Ben Lindbergh on the Prestige TV podcast every week. So just like we kind of did with Succession, Andy and I will have a a pretty immediate reaction Mm -hmm. on Mondays. And then you and Ben are going to dive deep on the show in the middle of the week, right? That's it. We will not have any like Albuquerque restaurant recommendations, which I hope <laughs> and pray Andy will. Um, but I, I loved, I loved listening to you guys cover oh, Succession. It was so good. Uh, so I'm really excited. No, you to and Sean to were guys. amazing too. It's fun to kind of like make these shows into like really a, like stretch them out and like think about them in so many different ways. It's really cool. I did today create an email account for that prestige feed, which is Kim Wexler lives at gmail.com. So if you need thoughts or theories or questions or quandaries, uh, I'm just putting that, those, that positive energy out into the universe. I also wonder what kind of spam that email account will get. (laughs) Um, Joanna, thank you so much for joining me. We were produced by Kaya McMullen and we will be back on Thursday. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.